Clap for that. It's all right. <laughs> Do I clap? Do I not? Uh, man, it was an incredible week. Um, as Miss Kathy said, over, um, I think right at 600 kids, 200-something volunteers. We had like over 100 middle school and high school students serve. It was just an incredible week. Um, they had me assigned to uh, teach third graders the Bible. Um, and I was telling somebody, it was quite interesting because we had the story of Zacchaeus, if you know this story, he was a wee little guy, all right? He was short and climbed up a tree to see Jesus. And there was like this art and craft thing. And I was like, I'm not art and craft. I was like, you can just take this home and do homework, all right? I'm gonna teach you the Bible. But it was amazing to see 600 kids worshiping. And as Kathy said, when 24 kids uh, went forward to pray to receive Christ, it was just amazing. That's what it's all about. And your prayers um, and and everything just went into that. And so it was just a great, great week. Uh, but thank you for being here. Uh, we're continuing our series forward, looking at the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church of Philippi in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians. It's in the latter part of the New Testament. It'll also be on the screen too. But um, to kind of kind of prime the pump, if you will, this morning, I wanted to ask you a question, just like kind of a thought uh, for you to start thinking about and wrestling with, and you can continue this thought throughout this week. But if you had to summarize, all right, let me see if I can articulate this. If you had to summarize all sins, or at least name one sin that every person on the face of this planet, all of mankind, struggles with, you had to choose one word to describe that sin, what would it be? Does that make sense? Am I asking the question? If there's something that every single one of us, you, me, and all of mankind struggle with, one sin that we all struggle with, what would it be? Now think about this. In my opinion, I think that sin would be selfishness or being selfish. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I really do think, and this is, once again, this is my opinion, not that the Bible says selfishness is the number one sin, but I really feel like selfishness is the root of pretty much every sin that I can think of, right? You think about the very original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. When Eve took of the fruit, it really was selfish in nature. She wanted, uh, she was tempted by Satan to be really and to know really what God was thinking in that. And if you think about our lives, if everything, this is just my opinion, everything's rooted in selfishness because I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I've thought to myself, this isn't go, go, going according to my plan, right? This is how I want my life to look. This is what I want my desires to be. At a young age, if you have kids or you remember when you were a kid, one of the first words other than the word no that you say is mine, right? That's mine. Give it to me. That's mine. Uh, I sound like the seagulls from Nemo. Have you ever seen that movie? Mine, 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 right? And so our, our kids learn that. We learn that. I mean, I have kids that are 10, 11, and 12. And when Sloan makes dessert or she's cutting cake or making cookies, and we're like, hey, go get one off the plate. It's like they want the biggest piece, right? They don't, they're like, mm, I'll take that one in the back, all right? It's the biggest. I mean, think about this. I, I can tell you how many times I've said to myself and out loud, I worked hard for that money and I'm going to buy what I want to buy, <laughs> Right? Have you ever said that? It's like, I, I deserve it. Um, and so there's kind of this mindset, um, intentional and not, that by our very nature, we're just selfish people. And I don't think anybody says, well, I really think of myself as selfish, but I think that's really something that we all struggle with. I think all mankind 
thinks about or struggles with the sin of selfishness in some kind of form or fashion, we want our life to be that. We even live in a world, if you think about this, we live in a world that is so selfish that we even try to, we not try, well, I guess we try to make up how we're going to get to heaven. Think about this, that we're so selfish that we kind of say, hey, it's not based on Jesus. It's, a, it's based on being good, and good is relative, so I'm good. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not in jail. Whatever the case may be, whatever your definition of good is, we all have different definitions, but because that's the definition, I'm so selfish, I don't want to think of myself in, uh, going to hell, so I'm going to think of myself going to heaven. You know what I'm saying? And so we, that's just the world that we live in, and I think it's not ironic or by coincidence that if that's the number one sin that all of mankind struggles with, it's not ironic or by circumstance that the very uh, nature, character, and purpose of Jesus coming to this earth was the exact opposite of selfishness. Think about that. He didn't come, so if, if anybody was going to be selfish, it could have been Jesus. He could have shown up and be like, hey, I'm finally here. I'm, I'm God's son. Bow down. Worship me. All you sinners. He didn't do that. He came humbly, right? Even he even said, Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, Mark accounts this of Jesus saying, even the son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, that is a mission statement of Jesus' life. And we see it all throughout the gospel where he's washing the disciples' feet. He's helping this person in need. He's, he's helping and meeting the needs of people before himself. And then ultimately, we can't forget, he sacrifices his life for the many, right? He, he puts his life on the line, says, hey, it's, it's not about my life. It's about your life and seeing um, your sin redeemed, and forgiven and, and experiencing the grace of God in such a way that I'm going to put my life on the line. And so I don't think it's ironic in that. And so as we come to chapter 2 in the book of Philippians, uh, what we know is chapter 2, we see that Paul is challenging this church. Remember, this is a letter to the church of Philippi, and he's challenging them to think beyond themselves. Now, we spent three weeks in chapter 1, and Chapter one is really this introductory letter or opening of this letter from Paul. He's talking about, hey, I love you guys as a church. You're doing everything well. We're partners in the gospel together. We're partakers of grace. He says that. Talks about how really he's passionate about seeing lives radically changed for what he says is the gospel. The gospel being the good news of Jesus that he came, he died um, for us to save us of our sins so we wouldn't spend eternity in he hell, but in heaven. And he talks about all this passion and he, he says, hey, I'm in jail right now writing this letter. And even that, even while I'm in jail, there is a purpose for this. And people are coming to know Jesus, and I'm excited about it. He says, I rejoice. And then last week, we looked at the tail end of chapter 1, where he really says, hey, life is Christ and death is gain. He's like, everything is for Jesus. Like, I don't really care um, what it looks like, what it means. As long as the gospel is advancing, it's everything. And he really closes this, um, th that first uh, chapter with saying, hey, live a life that's worthy of the gospel. And I think that's a good that's a good goal for all of us, right? I mean, I think sometimes, I know there's times in our life where we're like, that's way out of reach. I feel like I'm the farthest person away from Jesus right now. 
And that's normal. But for us to look and continually examine our lives and say, where am I in following Jesus? Am I like over here and it's just kind of like cultural, like I know Jesus is over there. I know I'm forgiven. I'm thankful for that, but I really have no relationship. Or are you like at the feet of Jesus every day, like just worshiping him, following him with everything that you have? And so uh, uh, chapter two starts out really with Paul, in my opinion, like just hitting you right in the heart. He's hitting the church of Philippi. Like it's been encouraging. You're doing great. Keep it up. All this other stuff. And I'm assuming this, I don't know if it was getting to their head. I don't know if they were starting to kind of boast about it or whatever. Um, But Paul really gives them a dose of humility in this. And so let's read this together. This is in chapter two, starting in verse one. We're going to go to verse 11 and we'll we'll walk through this um, as we go. Paul says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Now, let me stop there. He is passionate about the church being unified in this mission. Now, I would probably go out on a limb to say at some point in our life, whether we've been in church or not in church, we probably have been burned by Christians at some point. Uh, Maybe we were skeptical of the whole church thing and institutionalized religion and corporate worship and all those things. I've heard people say that. Or maybe you had a bad experience growing up. Maybe you've experienced Christians. And I think it really stems from us not being unified in the mission. If the mission is the gospel, the mission is Jesus, all the burn factors and shrapnel of the church has really come from being selfish, right? You can't sit in my seat. (laughs) That's my seat at church. It has my name in it. Or that's not the kind of music I like. Or that's not how we do things here. You know, I like it this way. You know what I'm saying? And all those different things come and stem from selfishness. And Paul is telling the church of Philippi, Hey, complete my joy by being unified together. Be of the same mind. Be be in one or full accord of one mind. Let's do this. Let's rally amongst this mission of seeing the gospel advance, seeing lives radically changed because of Jesus. Then he continues, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of of men. So Paul's just reminding them, let me remind you of who Jesus was, what he did, who he is. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Paul's preaching there, isn't he? What an incredible statement and words in this. You probably have heard this before. 
incredible, incredible statement where he's pointing to Jesus and saying, because of Jesus's humility and his obedience to God, even death on a cross, that, G, uh, that God exalted Jesus to be the name above all names. And one day, every single knee will bow at the feet of Jesus and every tongue will confess. He says, on earth and under earth and in heaven will bow down and worship Jesus. And so, man, that's like, to me, I look at this and I, I almost like feel like Paul is giving like that coach talk, you know, at halftime. Like he's rallying of the Philippian church, and he's like, hey, you know, I know it's hard. I'm in jail. Don't let all these things go to your head. Don't get prideful and conceitful, but let me remind you who Jesus is, and here's the example of Jesus. And so what I want to look at this morning is really kind of point out three things Paul discusses or points out of how you and I can, can really fight this temptation or the sin of selfishness so we can see the gospel advance. And the first one uh, if you're taking notes, is the power. Paul um, talks about the power of the Spirit. He starts off chapter 2 by saying, hey, if it's if any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and any participation in the Spirit. Pretty much in a nutshell saying, hey, if you and I are not going to be selfish individuals and we want to see the gospel advance, this has to be done through the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may or may not know this, but when you become a follower of Christ, when there is a moment in your life, not that you, you just believe in God and the work of Jesus, but there is a genuine, authentic surrendering of your life that says, hey, I don't have what it takes. I'm always struggling with this, and I need God's forgiveness through Jesus, and you just surrender your life. In that moment, if you honestly mean that, the Holy Spirit, comes into your life and dwells in you. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead comes and resides in your heart to help you in this process, what's called sanctification, being more like Jesus and following him. And it's through that, it's only through that, that you and I can not be selfish. Does that make sense? That for us to be people that are thinking about other people and putting other people first and being the example of Jesus, it all starts with the Spirit of God. Now, um, I want to show you this illustration. I did this at our downtown campus last week, and um, I thought, hey, Paul's kind of really continuing the sentiment and so I think it's really, I'm a visual learner, and it helps me understand and process this. If you watch the message online, uh, you're like a super Christian, all right? And so if you watched it from last week, kudos to you. I owe you dinner, and just make sure you give 20% today of your tithe. Um, just kidding, that's a joke, all right? But um, I want to kind of, I want to redefine what Paul is saying our life is, because in, in chapter one, he talks about how our life is Christ. We talked about that last week. And, and I think we have to have a proper perspective of this. And so I have this, uh, this tub up here, and it says my life. And this is often how we think about our life, all right? So we say, hey, here's my life. This is the life that God has given me. And there's different aspects of our life, right? There's different components that are compartments in our life um, that, that many of us have. I just kind of picked a few here to kind of highlight. But we, you know, one of the things that we say is in my life, a huge part of my life is family. Man, we hear family's everything to me. You know, I'm married. I have three kids. I love my, my boys. I love my wife. I would do anything for them. 
most of my time uh, is spent with my family, whether it's at home at dinner or, you know, watching them play sports or watch TV together as a family, whatever it is, a part of my life is my family. So we spend time, that, that's a huge a part of it, all right? If you think about this, um, we have hobbies, all right? Hobbies are a big part of our life. Maybe some of you like to watch sports teams, have your favorite sports teams. Um, maybe you, your kids play sports and you go out and you watch them and our kids do swim team. We have one more swim meet, thank God, okay? They're like 12 hours long. If you're a swim parent, you know what I'm talking about. I'm like, why, why am I watching other kids swim? I don't care about them, I don't care about my kids. No, just kidding, all right? But we have hobbies, right? And that takes up our time. Whether you like to, you know, woodwork, you like to watch TV, your kids have hobbies, that takes up a part of my life. All right, let's talk about this. Okay, money. Money's a part of our life, right? How we spend it, how we earn it. We have careers, we have jobs. Uh, maybe you like your job, maybe you hate your job. Uh, maybe you have a gazillion dollars in your bank account, maybe you have $20, okay? It doesn't matter. Money is a part of our life where we all have to pay bills. Some of us have larger bills. Some of us have more bills, whatever the case is. It takes up a huge part of our life. All right, let's talk about this because you're supposed to because we're in church. Christ, all right, you're here. God's a part of your life, right? We're in church. You're going to church. Hopefully you pray. Hopefully you're reading the Bible. Hopefully you believe in Jesus. That's a part of our life. Now here's two huge ones, right? Um, your past. Your past is a part of your life, right? Maybe the good, bad, and ugly has shaped you. Um, in good ways and bad ways. Maybe you've been wounded somehow. Maybe you, have, you made a really poor choice and it had some really crummy consequences and it just stinks, but that's part of your past. Um, maybe someone hurt you and um, you just can't forgive them. That's part of your past. It's part of your life. It's how you walk. Maybe you're struggling with that. Um, we can't forget our present, all right? Your present, you and I right now have things going on, tensions going on. Maybe it's the stress at work. Maybe it's, you know, our finances are stressful. Whatever's going on right now, you're currently struggling with something, whatever it is, it's a part of your life right now, right? And so we have all these things, you can name a gazillion more, but we have all these things that are a part of my life. Now, what Paul is saying is that as a believer, because the Holy Spirit comes into your life, this is the wrong definition, the wrong view of what our life should look like as believers. Now, think about this. If you're not a believer, and this is how you function in your life, when your family fails, it's your fault. When your finances fail, it's all on you. And so what the devil likes to do is to say it's all your fault. You know what? Your finances are your problem. You know what? You're never going to be anybody. You're always going to live paycheck to paycheck. You're never going to get ahead. You're not a good dad. You're not a good mom. Your kids are hellions because of you, you know? All these different things that we buy into because it's so foundational on my life. It's conditional based upon me. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. When you are a believer, the Holy Spirit comes in you and changes. It's not on your power. It's on Christ's power. So this is really how it should look, okay? Let me turn this around. Think about this. It's no longer just my life. 
Everything falls under the umbrella of Christ. And we see in scripture that when we become believers, we dwell in Christ. He even says if there's any encouragement in Christ. So now our view of life because of the power of the Holy Spirit in us is now in Christ. I can raise my family, all right? My family, I can lead my kids in Christ. Jesus is the umbrella of these things. So at dinner, let's talk about Jesus. Let's, I'm going to raise them based on the grace of Jesus in my life. So my family is going to, I'm going to raise them in Christ. All right. Our hobbies. Now this might sound silly, but as you're doing hobbies, you're doing things, do it for Christ. Do it in Christ. Now I'm not saying that, you know, like you're going to play baseball. Now you, everybody on your team has to be a Christian. Okay. Not saying that, but as you're encountering people in your hobbies, play music, you, you like motorcycles, you know, you, you sew, whatever. When you interact with people in the God-given talents and passions that you have, do it in the name of Christ. It is an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. All right, let's talk about Christ. Now, this might blow your mind, theologically speaking, but we see in Scripture, it, the Holy Spirit's twofold. The Holy Spirit dwells in us as we dwell in Christ. So, Jesus is in us. Christ is in us as we are dwelling in Christ. Our money, when we view it, not just on my life, it's not just my money, my bills, my paycheck. It's God's money and it's in Christ. And I want to be a good steward and manager of my finances. I want to budget well. I want to do things that honor God and, and I want to be able to give to the things that matter to God and not in a way that just matter to me. That, okay, you know, I have an extra $1,000. Well, I could do this, or I could just, I could give it to the church or help someone in need or what, whatever the case may be. Um, our money is in Christ. Now, this is huge. Your past, when you become a believer, is in Christ. Meaning, your past has been redeemed. You have been forgiven. Where Satan wants that to to enslave you and think I can never get past this. It's always going to be a reminder. He's always reminding you of the screw up and this mess up. Jesus says, bring it to me. Your past, I'm going to redefine. I want to restore. I want to redeem. Jesus came to die on the cross so for your past. He wants you, he wants you to give that to him. He says, come to me. All, all who are heavy uh, burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You're present. What you're currently struggling with right now, when you are living in Christ, he's saying, hey, bring that right now to me. Let me help you in that. We try to take it into our own hands. We try to say, that's my life. Jesus says, hey, no, bring it to me. Be in Christ. And so this happens, and Paul is saying to the church of Philippi, if you don't want to be all about you and be selfish, look to me. And change your view of it being my life and my plans and my priorities and my desires and say, what does it look like to live and to believe and desire in Christ? And I'm going to tell you, this is huge. It will change your life once the Holy Spirit comes in you and you view life that way. Uh, Paul says to the church of Galatia, another church he planted, I love this, um, in chapter 5 of Galatians, go read it. Um, that's some homework, right? Go read it. It's an incredible verse or passage, chapter uh, rich of all kind of stuff. But a couple of verses, chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, So I say to you, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. So when you're walking by the Spirit in Christ, the desires of being selfish in your ways aren't gratified. And he continues, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. So the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, isn't following the things of this world and the things of our flesh. It's contrary to it. So when the Spirit lives in us, it fights the selfishness that's there. And then second, this kind of an outcome, you might have heard of the fruit of the Spirit. uh, Verses 22 through 26, Paul says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are outcomes of the Spirit living inside of us. He says, um, and I love this, he continues, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So Paul is like plain and simple to saying, hey, when you're in Christ, let us live this way, not selfishly by my life. Let us live this way. And the outcome is opposite of um, arrogance and conceitedness. All right. So that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we see the command that Paul is giving to the church of Philippi. He says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And this is plain and simple. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need some biblical commentary or some, what is the language of origin that Paul's using here? I mean, he's pretty much saying, put others before yourself. Think about other people more than yourself. And, and I, I wrote this down because I think this is um, so, so true of us. But the gospel doesn't advance when you, or quite frankly, me, are selfish, conceited, arrogant, and only care about yourself. I mean, that's a true statement. You will be a barrier to lives being radically changed by Jesus and the people in your life. He wants to use you, but it will not go through you if you are arrogant, selfish, conceited, and only care about you. You're a barrier. And I don't know about you, I don't want to be a barrier to that. I want God to use me and I want lives to be changed. From me. Think, think about this way. This is where it hits home for me. I want my kids to know Jesus. And not just know of Jesus because their dad's a pastor and they go to church. and That's what we do as a family. I want them to be passionately in love with Jesus. And I want them to choose that. And the reason I want them to choose that or how I want them to choose that is I want them to see in my life as their dad that God means so much to to me and Jesus has done so much in my life. I want them to see that radical transformation and that love just becoming contagious in my life that they say, I need that. And how wrong and really, um, I don't even know the word to say here, but I would hate for me to be a barrier to my kids seeing Jesus because I'm arrogant, selfish, and prideful. Because I don't want to talk about her. It makes me a little uncomfortable or I got things to do and I'm too busy. No, I want them to see that. It is the greatest gift that I can give my kids as their dad. 
And that can be said of anybody we come in contact with. And so the command that Paul is saying is don't be a barrier. Don't be conceited. And I think one of the problems with the church, okay, this is humble pie right here. One of the problems with the church today is that it is really good at believing in God and not good in believing in other people. We can be really good to kind of have our holy huddle and, man, I love God. We're going to worship. We're going to read the Bible. We're going to pray. Man, I got that down. But as soon as we leave this place, we can become the most hypocritical, judgmental people in the world. And you and I know this, that many Christians are known for what they're against than what they're for. And so what ends up happening is what speaks louder is how we vote and what we, how we view cultural events or cultural whatever laws and practices instead of our love and passion for Jesus. And I hope and pray that as a church, and I know we strive for this, even amongst our mistakes and failures, that we are a church and you and I are a people as believers that yes, we're good at believing in God, but we believe in other people. Because you and I were once other people. We needed God and Jesus just like anybody else. For us not to be people that are pointing fingers and all that kind of stuff because we're in Christ. And as he dwells in us and us in him, we see other people the way that Jesus sees them. And it's not about me and you. And then in closing, we see third, that Paul's like, hey, if that's not enough of knowing Jesus and, um, and the command to do so, let, let me look to Jesus as a, the example, all right? Third point, the example. And we see this really in verses six, six through 11. He's like, hey, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And because of that humility, God raised him, exalted him to be the name above all names. So he's telling the church of Philippi, he's writing this, hey, we know in the spirit it's supposed to be like this. I'm commanding you not to be selfish, but then look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You want to know how to live correctly? Look to Jesus. You want to know how to treat people well? Look to Jesus. You want to know how to change people's lives and advance this gospel, this good news? Look to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He is the answer of moving forward. I love what um, John the Baptist said in John 3.30. Um, if you remember, people thought that John the Baptist was Jesus. And he's like, oh, let me correct you. And he says this in John 3.30. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. You probably have heard that. Easy Bible verse to memorize. You know, you have like the shortest Bible verse, like Jesus wept, all right? That's easy to memorize. Then you have this one. It's so easy. What an awesome way to pray and to memorize every single day for us to fight selfishness, to say, let God increase and me decrease. Isn't our life as believers not to make ourselves bigger to God, but to really make God bigger for other people? To really point them to the work of Jesus. And just as a closing thought, for the gospel to change the lives of the people we know, people we love, people we care for, people need to see less of our pride and more of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. People need to see less of us and more of Jesus. So that's kind of my invitation as we close this morning. Do people see more of you or do they see more of Jesus? 
Do your kids see more of you or more of Jesus? Do your coworkers see more of you or more of Jesus? And it's my hope and it's my prayer and it's my desire that as believers, that should be your goal too, that people see more of Jesus in our life than they see more of us. Now we all have a story to tell and how Jesus worked in us. And that's a part of telling people about Jesus, about what he's done but let it not be based on our works and who we think we are and who we're not and all those things. Let it be pointed right to Jesus because Jesus is the one who transforms lives. Jesus is the one that takes your past and your present and your family and your job, your career, your finances and says, hey, just come under me. Let me love you. Stop trying to do it all on your own. Let me take care of you and transform your life. And that's, if that's you this morning, you've never made that decision, I would love to talk to you. But let's pray and then we'll continue in closing and worship together. Let's pray. Father, every single one of us in this room, myself included, are selfish in our nature. In a lot of ways, I feel like Paul who says, I'm the, I'm the chief sinner. And as we all struggle with this desire to try to please ourselves and make life all about us. God, I pray that you just wreck that this morning. Let us have a desire and a passion to live for you. And that starts by a participation, as Paul says, this engagement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And for the person here who's never accepted Jesus and surrendered their life to you, God, I pray that today's that moment. That they take a step and just recognizing, hey, God, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I need you. I need you to guide my life. I want to live in you and in Christ as we talked about this morning. And then for those of us who are just struggling through life, God, let us be more passionate about you. Let people see you more than they see us in this life. As anywhere that we go, whether it's in our family, at our jobs, out, out and about in the community, let people see your work, see your goodness and your grace. Not our failures, not our attempts to try to be good, but you ultimately as an incredible, holy God, let people see that. And as we sing about your goodness, as we sing about your grace, as we sing about your work in us, let us proclaim it loud and worshipful to say, you are all those things, God. I am nobody without you. And as we leave this place, let us leave confident that people will see Jesus in our life. In your son's name, amen. Let's stand and close and worship together.